Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Art on the New Books Network. My name is Diana DeHanaba, and I will be your host today. And today we welcome to the program Dr. John Curley. Dr. Curley is Associate Professor of Art History in the Department of Art at Wake Forest University. He's published widely on American and European post-war art and photography. His research has been supported by the Getty Research Institute, the Yale Center for British Art, the Henry Moore Institute, and others. He's the author of A Conspiracy of Images, Andy Warhol, Gerard Richter, and the Art of the Cold War, which was published by Yale University Press in 2013. Today, we're discussing his second book, Global Art in the Cold War, which was published earlier this year in 2019 from Lawrence King Publishing. Dr. Curley, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Diana. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Now, to get us started, could you talk a bit about your research background and how you came to write this book? Sure. In uh, graduate school, I went to I went to Yale. I wrote my dissertation <clears throat> dissertation on the art of Andy Warhol and Gerhard Richter, as you mentioned uh, in, in, in your introduction, and thinking about uh, more broadly like what art is during the Cold War. And that book was, you know, focused on the, on pop art. And I, after I finished that book, I was talking to a colleague of mine, um, and we were we were discussing how there is no one book that attempts to um, you know to tackle. Um, global art production during the Cold War. And it seems sort of odd. And the Cold War has been you know, touted as the central story of the post-war period. Um, <clears throat> and so while the book, of course, says you can't tackle everything, it uh, does try to lay out some kind of synthetic account of global production during, during the conflict. So I think it really does fill, uh, fill, a, fill a need uh, in the scholarship and hopefully will inspire um, f- future work uh, along those lines. Now, uh, your introduction is called The Cold War as a Way of Seeing, and there you discuss the construct of the Cold War as an ideological lens through which both political events and cultural <clears throat> products were viewed, while the divisions between communist and capitalist countries deepened throughout the 20th century. Um, can you talk a little bit about this idea and the role that it plays in shaping your analysis of 20th century art? Sure. Um, I begin the book with the idea that a painter um, coined the most enduring metaphor of the Cold War, this idea of the Iron Curtain. And I am cheating a little bit because the painter is the great amateur painter Winston Churchill, who is, of course, better known as the British prime minister and international statesman. Um, but Churchill's phrase provided a vivid image of a fiercely divided Europe, um, and indeed the world for, for some people, um, between, the capitalist, between capitalism and communism. Uh, and these two camps viewed, of course, the world in very, very different ways. And in the introduction, I also explore this idea and its implication for images uh, thinking especially about the aerial photographs that spurred the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, because as images, they told Americans and the world very little. Um, you know, without the captions that were appended to the image itself, um, they looked something like abstract paintings. And in fact, when President Kennedy was first shown the images in the Oval Office um, without the captions, he didn't know what he was looking at. He said it looked like a, quote, football, a football field. Uh, but Americans really did sort of uh, look at these images and believe them as an act of faith. Uh, and, and the Soviets, before you know, before they um, before they sort of fessed up to it, they did uh, also deny the veracity of these photographs. So in some ways, that those photographs 
um, show the ways that um, that one's ideological background, one's belief system uh, influences interpretation. And there are a couple. There's one artist I talk about in the introduction, which I think um, shows how you know people who made paintings were thinking uh, about the world in precisely these terms. Um, there's a, a British pop artist named Gerald Lang, not a very well known painter, but he made this great work in '62 called Souvenir, um, and it's painted on angled vertical slots. So um, basically, you can paint sort of two images on a flat, so you know, on a on a on the same surface. And so when you when you when you're to the left of the picture, you see an image of uh, President Kennedy. Um, when you move to the right of the image, you see an image of uh, of Khrushchev, um, the Soviet leader. And so in some ways, he thinks about um, how a singular image can be interpreted in two different ways, um, you know, both communist and capitalist. And also, when you look at the picture straight on, as we you know, usually view paintings, we, we see them in a museum, um, it's a scrambled mess. The picture is pulled in these two different directions. And I think that's a really good metaphor for thinking about how most people around the world who weren't living in the U.S. or the Soviet Union um, thought about the world, not as neither capitalist nor communist, but somehow pulled and trapped between the two. Um, and so the book really tries to think about uh, art in these terms of uh, you know, how pictures themselves shift can shift meaning depending on who, uh, who looks at them. And this is this concept that you discussed from Gomberg called automatic completion. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, Gomberg is really important to my research. Um, he had the, this really important book he published in 1960, so really the height of the sort of the tensions of the early Cold War called Art and Illusion. Um, and he talks about this idea of automatic completion. But he begins the book with, um, with the famous sort of duck-rabbit diagram. Um, you know that diagram where you see, you know, you can see a duck and a rabbit at the same time or flick, flickering back and forth. And for him, this image shows sort of the complexities of perception, how and how the same image can be read or interpreted in two different ways. So it's actually, you know, well, it doesn't talk about the Cold War. He is very much engaged in ideas of how images have these sort of different uh, different meanings. Um, so I'm really uh, interested in that and the ways that um, that of course Americans saw the Soviets in a really unnuanced way. The Soviets saw the Americans in very unnuanced ways. Now the conflict really did. So to push the two sides in a corner to see each other as almost these caricatures, you know, you know, of uh, of capitalism and communism, and so really um, trying to prevent ideas of nuance or or you know thinking about similarities between the systems. So would you say that's why the conflict sort of lend itself so readily to artistic representation? Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. And I think my one of my favorite quotes in the book um, is one that I've sort of thought about for a long time was um, was was written by Marshall McLuhan, the great Canadian media theorist uh, in 1964, where he writes that the Cold War was, quote, really an electric battle of information and images, unquote. And so there were no, you know, there were no direct military conflicts between the Soviets and the Americans. Of course, there was Korea and, and Vietnam, these proxy wars. But because there are no direct conflicts, this, the, you know, the, the Cold War really was waged on the level of intelligence gathering, um, of media representations, of cultural products. So it really was this you know, uh, war waged as information and images. Um, and I think about the idea of nuclear deterrence, um, you know, the idea that it's not really how many weapons you actually have, but the image of how many weapons one actually has, that is important. Um, and Professor, uh, this John Gaddis, the uh, you know, this Cold War historian, um, has talked about the Cold War in terms of um, a th- like a theater production that confuses the distinctions between illusions and reality. And so in this world, I think art, as you're sort of trying to represent the world and deal with the visual world, is very, very much involved in 
you know, uh, in both shaping and also sort of uh, reflecting um, this war of images and information. Uh, now, you talk about how um, in the United States and in the West in the 20th century, the development of art had a lot to do with developing an antidote to socialist realism. And the first movement was the uh, abstract expressionism. But as you describe, some of its key artists, like Mark Rothko, actually started out as realists and moved from there to surrealism and eventually to what became known as abstract expressionism. So what were the reasons behind this development and how was it influenced by the artist's own political convictions? Yes, yeah, a great question, a very complicated one, but it's also central and one of the most important ones in the book. Um, as your question suggests, Rothko, who becomes sort of the painter of those stacked abstract rectangles that become sort of emblems of abstract expressionism, you know, was a figurative artist in the 30s. And it's helpful to remember that the 30s was the decade, of course, of the Great Depression, a time when alternatives to capitalism, you know, namely socialism, had broad appeal uh, in the United States. And many artists, you know, in the 30s were, you know, were committed socialists. Um, and as such, they were, you know, committed to a figurative practice that dealt with, you know, social issues that affected the working class uh, and, and so on. And so, for instance, the art historian Meyer Shapiro, who is, you know, was um, you know, sort of really well-known, uh, well-known figure in the period, he condemned abstract art as sort of pandering to the rich, to the wealthy, not dealing with those issues that really need to be dealt with. And Rothko's best-known painting from the time, from the 1930s, is a picture called Subway Scene, and it depicts exactly what it, what you know, what the title suggests: um, people go, walking down into the subway, going through the gates. So a very working-class sort of manner of transport. Yes, it's sort of modern in how Rothko has sort of um, sort of blurred and has sort of um, sort of fuzzy sort of fuzzy edges to his picture, but still it has social uh, content. Um, um, so those, you know, this was sort of how artists were thinking about the 1930s. But by the end of the 1930s, socialism was called into question in America. And this largely has to do with, you know, Stalin's war crimes, you know, and sort of murderous regime was becoming very well known. Uh, the show trials and um, the gulags um, were, were being reported in, in, in American newspapers. But also in 1939, um, the Nazis and the Soviets signed a non-aggression pact, agreed not to attack each other, um, you know, for, you know, um, um, for a few, you know, at least for a few years, and of course, the Soviets broke that pact. But for for American progressives, this was, you know, uh, a, a moment of real soul searching. They were thinking to uh, the Soviets as a model for for the new world, and now um, they were aligning themselves with the fascists. Um, and so this was um, a real moment of crisis. And also useful to remember too that both Stalin and Hitler required non-modern works of art. Um, so Hitler required sort of, you know, a figurative practice that was um, resonant of neoclassical models. Uh, and Stalin also sort of, you know, outlawed abstraction. Um, and so surrealism became an option for artists like Mark Rothko um, and actually uh, Trotsky, um, who was, you know, a, one, of, uh, one of Stalin's right-hand men who fell, who fell out of favor and was exiled in Mexico um, before he was murdered by Stalin's henchmen. He had this idea of art being sort of, um, you know, uh, revolutionary art should be free, should not be tied to socialist realism. And he actually co-authored an essay with the, the surrealist uh, Andre Breton, which he outlined these ideas. So it's a long, the long way of saying that basically surrealism um, and then abstract expressions becomes a way of having a free socialist kind of art um, that was not tied to socialist realism. So the key takeaway here is that the origin of American abstract expressionism, this sort of very um, important Cold War force of freedom and individuality, 
actually in its lifeblood has this ideas of socialism and, and ideas of, um, you know, of, uh, of Marxism um, within its very form. So that's one of the key sort of uh, takeaways of that first chapter. Um, and I think most people, when they think about expressionism, they think of Jackson Pollock, right? They picture those big canvases. He's one of the best known and most influential artists from that movement. And he had a major impact on the way that the movement was framed, both politically and ideologically. Can you talk a bit about his work and how it came to be associated, particularly with an American mindset and artistic practice? Sure. And like Rothko, Pollock was, you know, began as a figure to paint in the 30s. He studied with the regionalist artist Thomas Hart Benton. And he's also somewhat political. I mean, the, I guess he designed, uh, helped design a, a anti-capitalist float for a May Day parade in 1936. And like artists, I many artists, he turned to surrealism uh, in the early 1940s. Um, but his major breakthrough was around 1947, where he d- discovered that he was could paint uh, on the ground um, with his canvases horizontally, um, sort of creating these dripping paintings out of uh, swirling vortexes of a uh, of, uh, of dripped pigment. And these were his sort of, you know, his breakthrough. In the years 1948 to 1950, he creates the sort of massive, some of them are 18 feet across, these really large, um, uh, you know, paintings like Autumn Rhythm um, that, um, that have become sort of famous and, and icons of the period. And the thing about why, as your question suggests, Pollock becomes so important to the Cold War, I think it's vital to think about the two really major critical voices um, in the 1950s. Um, there were two critics named Clement Greenberg um, and, and Harold Rosenberg. And incidentally, these two critics like hated each other. They couldn't be in the same room um, with each other. So um, they had two very different views about art. Um, and Greenberg saw Pollock as the fulfillment of the European avant-garde tradition. So it has a bit of cubism's shattering of the figure ground distinction. It has some of Matisse's color. It has some of surrealism's embrace of experimental techniques. And so Pollock brings all these sort of raw materials of European modernism to some kind of American original fulfillment. And for Greenberg, this is proof positive that the capital of modern art had shifted to New York City um, by 1950. And it was come as no surprise that Greenberg even read one of his essays um, over the Voice of America radio broadcast that was beamed into Western Europe and Eastern Europe um, as sort of proof of his uh, sort of pro-American uh, credentials. And Rosenberg, Harold Rosenberg's ideas were perhaps sort of more, more influential on a global level, at least how they were sort of popularly understood. He wrote a very famous essay in 1952 called The American Action Painters, where he argued that the canvas had been transformed into quote, arena in which to act. Um, and for him, paintings were not made by sort of sketches or planning some composition beforehand, but rather when the artist confronted a blank canvas. So think about Pollock making one mark, then he makes another mark in response to that first mark. And eventually the painting sort of builds up and is the result of the process of painting itself. Um, and Rosenberg viewed these gestures as, quote, liberation. Um, and so these were, began to be sort of codified in these Cold War terms of individualism. And you think about other sort of macho sort of uh, figures in this period, James Dean in film, Hemingway in literature, Charlie Parker in, in jazz and music, and Pollock becomes another one of these heroically individual figures who, who makes marks, makes paintings that are radically his own. Um, and so we can begin to see why these paintings became, you know, whether, you know, kind of, a, you know, kind of against Pollock's will, if you, if you think about it, as these emblems of a rugged American individualism. And Pollock being from Cody, Wyoming, 
you know, the, you know, the, the land of Buffalo Bill, you know, really did solidify these cowboy credentials uh, you know, of, of, of his work. There's certainly a, a masculinization of, of art, right, in order to make it uh, quite appealing. Oh, totally. an image of a cold warrior. Yeah. yeah uh, right. Now, what role did the American government play in the development of abstract expressionism? That's a great question. So some, some of the links are circumstantial, but it is clear that, you know, um, that, there, you know that's, that exhibitions and receive some sort of covert American funding for exhibitions to tour Europe. Uh, most notably, there's a 1958-1959 exhibition called The New American Painting that toured eight European cities, um, including Milan, London, Berlin, Paris, and Brussels. Um, um, and so the, and the funding was covert because, um, you know, museums didn't want uh, American taxpayers to say, you know, oh, I'm funding this abstract painting by Pollock. So there's still kind of some aversion against abstract art, at, you know, sort of in middle America. Um, so they did covertly fund um, some exhibitions abroad. Um, that served as sort of soft propaganda. But I should also say that, you know, museum trustees, museum directors, um, and politicians were all sort of aligned in sort of an anti-communist position. And so even without government funding, these exhibitions certainly would have toured, uh, uh, toured Europe. Um, but I think, it's, um, I think it's important to note that there was official support. And I think while the propaganda value of these exhibitions is hard to value, there is some anecdotal evidence. So for instance... The German painter Gerhard Richter, who was trained in East Germany as a socialist realist painter, um, he did actually uh, see some Pollocks at an exhibition called Documenta II in uh, 1959 in Kassel, Germany. And he later said that, quote, I might almost say that those paintings were the real reason I left the GDR, or East Germany. I realized something was wrong with my whole way of thinking, unquote. And so he even saw these large paintings as emblems of liberty, as emblems of something else, you know, that one could do in art. And so there is some anecdotal evidence that this, these paintings had some kind of effect uh, you know, on those who saw them. Uh, now, what were the contemporary developments in Soviet art during this period um, that was coming when abstract expressionism was coming into its own in the West? Yeah, it's very complex as well. And we have to go back a little further, actually. In uh, the pre-revolutionary period, um, you know, before 1917, uh, many artists attempted to reinvent art as part of the revolution. So Casimir Malevich made the famous Black Square, which has become an emblem or a way for artists to think about a painting without uh, content. But I'm actually more interested in the book in constructivism. These are artists who tried to, around 1920, to make art that was useful, um, whether it's making uh, fabric designs or dresses or furniture. Um, So these artists were trying to put their art in the service of the revolution. And so put simply, trying to overturn this idea that art was a commodity that, hang, that hung on a wall of the rich and the wealthy as sort of useless objects. And the constructivists wanted to reimagine art to, that would eradicate class boundaries and be useful for the revolution. Um, but as a fledgling state of the 1920s, there was really no financial support for this kind of radical artistic innovation. And also the peasants and working classes still thought that these forms looked elitist. And so in, in around the early 1930s, Stalin mandated socialist realism, uh, figurative art practices, um, and outlawed all sort of modern uh, forms. And socialist realism was not sort of art or not life as it really was, but life, I guess, crucially as it should be. Um, so these pictures would picture you know, Stalin as a great benevolent leader. They would picture happy workers, uh, happy farmers, you know, et cetera, et cetera. 
And all these works were commissioned by the state. There was no independent art market, no independent art being made. It was all tied to ideology and to the, to the Soviet state. Um, so some artists eventually worked underground, as we'll talk about perhaps later, but socialist realism was the only option available. What was the role of art um, in similar different communist regimes outside of the Eastern Bloc, for example, in China? That's a great question. I mean, their adherence to socialist realism uh, varied across the bloc. I mean, and before we get to China, I think Poland's interesting. They had a weird rule after 1956 that they um, uh, they could tolerate abstraction, but could not be more than 15 percent of any one exhibition. Uh, but China, of course, you know, Mao declared the People's Republic in 1949, and immediately um, there's artistic exchange between China and the Soviet Union. And many Chinese painters began to sort of emulate Soviet styles, um, you know, merely replacing Mao uh, in the place of, uh, of Stalin. Um, but there are also some really interesting hybrid examples where, um, you know, where you would have a mixture of traditional Chinese styles like, uh, you know, like ink techniques, ink painting, uh, fused with socialist realism. Uh, so one artist named Shi Lu had a traditional ink landscape background and then put sort of more Soviet figures in the foreground, having this very um, you know, hybrid uh, Chinese slash Soviet aesthetic that shows that nations adapted and did sort of their, you know, sort of uh, modified the parameters of socialist realism for their own ends. Uh, now, what was the attitude um, towards abstract art among Soviet art critics? And why did they characterize abstract expressionism as a sort of the art of extreme capitalism or extreme capitalist alienation? Yeah, I mean, Soviet critics labeled abstract expressionism as what they called formalism. And formalism for them was works of art, whether it's paintings or literature, that called attention to how it was made, how it was written or how it was painting, instead of its content. And for the Soviets, this was the height of decadence, of elitism. Um, and I think an easier way to think about it, too, is that for, you know, a painting by Pollock or by Rothko was, you know, indifferent to the human condition because it had no humans in the picture. Um, so literally to Soviet art critics, these were read as landscapes devoid of human presence that showed, um, you know, that showed the, the lack of, of empathy, of, you know, of, of, you know, lack of caring uh, for, uh, for humans. Um, and so Soviet thinkers thought it was fitting that you know, rich industrialists would purchase abstract works of art for their walls that sort of solidify their own anti-humanist thinking. And it's kind of funny, there's this faddish craze in the 50s of, you know, chimpanzees painting abstract paintings, um, and Soviet and East German press sources would sort of capitalize on these or show these pictures as proof that um, abstract art was animalistic and unrefined um, and really about selfish greed. If chimpanzees painted this way, it must not be sort of about the working classes. It's more about sort of our own animalistic um, desires. So it's kind of interesting how, um, you know, they, the Soviets saw this sort of Pollock as these, uh, you know, deeply anti-humanist works when, of course, Americans saw them as, you know, all about the individual. Now, could you talk a little bit about the wider context of the ideological clash between abstract and realism and art? For example, the role of art in the conflict between East and West Germany. Yeah, Germany is a really fascinating case study because it shows the you know this partial breakdown of the Cold War binary. Um, and you know, put very basically, the Nazi past really did complicate how Cold War artists in both East and West Germany uh, negotiated artistic styles. Um, in West Germany, there was abstract painting, but it's much more refined and rational and balanced uh, than sort of the brash American examples. Um, 
So if a lot of American art was interpreted as active and rugged, German abstraction was viewed as something like a bomb that was sort of harmonious. You would look at it and sort of see calm and, um, and sort of, uh, you know, and rationality. And to think about a, you know, Germany as sort of uh, both physically and psychologically you know, sort of devastated after the war with, you know, with you know, sort of lots of, you know, mass amounts of guilt about, about the horrific murderous regimes and, uh, and, death, and death factories um, in Germany, you know, the abstraction had us, couldn't really deal with those really visceral issue, issues in 1947. So the abstract art was much more um, refined than American examples. In the same way that socialist realism in East Germany couldn't look like Nazi art. And so um, more sort of attention to surface, sort of more expressionism, more painterly surfaces were tolerated uh, in East Germany uh, as well. And this example demonstrates one of the book's primary claims, that while the Cold War is a, you know, a vital story that um, shaped art around the world, it is not the only story. Um, so local situations on the ground in Germany and elsewhere oftentimes would work with, you know, um, dominant Cold War narratives, but also would work against those, uh, those forces. So the book really does speak at length about this, um, about this tension between the local uh, and the global during the Cold War. Now, this binary framing of, on the one hand, abstract artist, capitalist, uh, American democratic and realist artist, communist, as you talk about, posed the challenge for Western artists, right? So many sympathized politically with the Soviet Union or identified as communists, but they preferred abstract art or at least a less realist style. Could you talk about how the situation impacted artists uh, such as, for example, Pablo Picasso? Yeah, Picasso in the Cold War really is this, you know, it's like a phenomenal story because it's, uh, you know, in fact, in East Germany, as I was just talking about, they had a substantial debate called the Picasso problem. And the problem was such, he was, Picasso joined the Communist Party in 1944 and was perhaps the world, one of the world's most famous communists. And he made in really a number of important political paintings after this. In 1951, he painted a picture called Massacre and Career, which purported to show an American massacre of civilians, including women and children, uh, during the Korean War. And this picture really made no one happy. I mean, it, the Soviets didn't like its modern style and the fact that Picasso didn't explicitly label the aggressors as Americans. And of course, the Americans and the Western Europeans didn't like it because it called attention to an, to an alleged American war crime. And Picasso had a great sort of way to explain his position. Uh, in 1948. He said, quote, I don't advise the Russians on economics. Why should they tell me what to paint, unquote? And so I think it's instructive that the world's most famous artists at this time consciously avoided sort of the binary sides of the Cold War. Yes, he was a communist, but he decided to paint in his own way that blended sort of political content with more, with more modern styles. Um, so it goes without saying that literally hundreds of artists also try to find this sort of third way between the sides, like um, Renate Gattuso in Italy is another great example of someone with political content painted, painted in an expressionistic, uh, sort of cubistic way. So um, it's really, Picasso is a, um, is a, is a really important case study uh, for the book. And going off of that, you point out throughout your book that while art was understood in very binary and highly politicized terms, it often served as a site of bridging cultures. Can you talk about this dimension and particularly the role of technology in this development? Sure. I mean, I think technology is this, you know, crucial bridge between the two sides. And you think about after the Soviets acquired the atomic bomb in 1949, both sides were linked under this, you know, technocratic 
uh, cloud of potential uh, nuclear apocalypse. And as A-bombs became H-bombs or hydrogen bombs in the 1950s, the entire world was sort of linked under this sort of atomic threat. Um, and thinking about you know, how the two sides, the Soviets and the Americans, um, sort of really uh, prioritized science in these years, there was a, you know, really a focus on cybernetics. And this term was coined by the American Norbert Wiener in 1948. But really, cybernetics posited parallels between, uh, between the natural and computer worlds. Um, you think about if you minimize the human element uh, in sort of making sort of nuclear launch decisions, um, it's, it's, it makes for a more credible deterrent that sort of takes the human emotional element out of those, uh, out of those um, situations. Um, and while Stalin banned cybernetics early on, after he died, the Soviets really did embrace this sort of really rational, computerized view of, uh, you know, of, um, you know, of systems. Uh, artists around the world you know, in the 1950s began to think about this. And I think it's fascinating that in the Soviet Union, many artists actually began showing in science labs. So they couldn't show abstract paintings in art galleries or museums, but they could show abstract work in laboratories as quote-unquote experiments, not, not art. And so technology became sort of a safety valve for Soviet artists and other sort of artists in the Eastern Bloc to make sort of abstract and innovative works outside of socialist realism. Um, so technology was this sort of an interesting thing. And also artists in the United States um, began to work with technology. Uh, Warhol worked with Bell Labs and um, with this man named Billy Kluver to use mylar to make interesting uh, sculptures out of uh, sort of helium balloons. And then famously, this uh, French artist, Jean Tingley, and um, the courtyard of MoMA in 1960 made this giant contraption of sort of tires and bathtubs and pianos that he mechanized. And this, this machine destroyed itself um, um, in front of a well-dressed crowd at you know, the courtyard of MoMA one evening. Um, and so he's, you know, many artists are using technology, thematizing technology in their work. And I think Tingley's example is a great one that it shows how artists, even think of the dark side of technology, how in some ways, a machine that destroys itself is a fitting allegory of, of our existence living under the bomb in a world that's potentially going to end uh, at any, any second. The, this leads to the development with artists not wanting to participate so much in this binary or this uh, polar, uh, polarization of art, uh, the development of a third way. Um, can you talk about that and why Latin America and Yugoslavia particularly emerge as sites for the development of a third way? Good. So yeah, Yugoslavia in 1948, the leader Tito sort of famously broke with Stalin. Um, and so really neither side, Cold War side, trusted Yugoslavia. And so they always had this very independent sort of existence. And the artists um, sort of following this began to sort of forge uh, independent existence outside of abstraction and, um, and socialist realism. Um, so they would, would try to they would make really, really rational and geometric abstract paintings that were you know, sort of um, not that American model of emotive and anxious uh, paintings. And they also would use computers and technology in their works. Um, kinetic art became a great unifying force in both Central Europe as well as Latin America. These are sculptures that use motors, that use technology um, sort of to, um, you know, to create visual, uh, visual effects. And so many countries in Latin America, whether it be uh, Brazil or Argentina, also were trying to forge their own independent paths. And their artworks, you know, definitely reflect that uh, reflect that uh, that mindset. Uh, many of these artists look back to that Soviet model of constructivism, uh, making art that's useful, and um, to achieve some sort of a, 
uh, independent voice uh, in the Cold War art world. Uh, now, can you talk a little bit more? You mentioned pop art previously, and pop art becomes one of these forms that uh, is this emergence of American art that doesn't quite adhere to the ostensible standards of abstraction. So how did pop art challenge these uh, decades-long binary thinking about the creation and reception of art? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's really good to start with Andy Warhol here. And, like, he had a quote, which he wrote later, but I think it really does apply to his work in the 60s, where he wrote, quote, The president drinks Coke, Liz Taylor drinks Coke, and just think, you can drink Coke, too. A Coke is a Coke, and no amount of money can get you a better Coke than the one the bum on the corner is drinking. All the Cokes are the same, and all the Cokes are good. Liz Taylor knows it, the president knows it, the bum knows it, and you know it, unquote. And so it's a really interesting quote, because for Warhol... The, you know, a can of Coke or a bottle of Coke is the, this sort of Cold War paradox. Uh, it's a capitalist commodity that nevertheless made the socialist gesture of eradicating uh, class barriers. And even before the term pop art caught on, Warhol tried, tried out his own sort of name for his art. He called it communism. Not communism, but sort of the painting of common objects, um, communism. And so it really was on his mind. He saw his own work as intentionally trying to dismantle um, these sort of, um, you know, these distinctions between uh, capitalism and communism. You also think about his later silkscreen works from the, you know, uh, from around 60, 1963. And, you know, he takes a photograph and transfers it to a silkscreen and then uh, paints that silkscreen on canvas. And many times these images were blurred or were sort of fuzzy. And to think about, you know, what is an image that falls between abstraction and, and realism it's a blurred photograph. Um, and so we begin to see how Warhol's, in his very sort of form of his paintings, finds a way to literally blur the distinctions between realism uh, and abstraction by making, you know, nearly abstract paintings through photographs. So Warhol's a really interesting case study uh, in the book. Uh, and you talk about how uh, Warhol's art really becomes popular around the time that there's this growing cynicism around the Vietnam War and American militarism in the 1960s. So how does pop art reflect on that in, in particular? Yeah, I mean, I think in the, uh, you know, in, uh, when Eisenhower left office in 1960, he coined the phrase the military-industrial complex. And this begins to sort of catch on steam, especially in the 1960s. It basically means that a, you know, a, war econo- a permanent war economy is good, you know, is good business, made people very, very wealthy and, and successful. And so many pop artists began to think about commodities, whether it's a Coke bottle or a can of soup or, or what have you, as sort of linked to conflict. Um, you know, also think about how Eisenhower appoints the head of GM as his secretary of defense. So there were these links between uh, consumerism and sort of national defense that were always there, but how pop artists began to make those explicit. Um, and so like the brilliant American artist Martha Rossler made collages uh, in the late 60s called Bringing the War Home, where you would have, um, she would take um, images from American shelter magazines of beautiful interiors, and then collage in, you know, images of war, uh, Vietnamese soldiers, you know, a mother holding her, you know, her, uh, her napalm child. And so literally infusing these sort of idealized, rich American environments with, with the war, um, connecting American consumerism uh, with, the war, uh, with the war abroad. Um, you know, if consumerism uh, allowed Americans to forget about what's going on halfway across the world, Martha Rosser's works and other pop artists tried to really puncture that complacency uh, with their works. Uh, and is it fair to say that pop art came to be seen sort of as the new abstract expressionism in terms of taking place as the art that's most reflective of American values? 
Certainly, uh, by the mid '60s, pop art was you know shown all you know throughout Europe, and you know as sort of the great example of American art. Um, and it's also you know interesting to think about how Coke began its you know its own uh, international operations in 1948, and so um, you know consumerism becomes a sort of global phenomenon. Um, and this term was for, it was coined in the late '60s, you know, Coca colonization. How Coke begins to colonize the world in the way that empires used to in the the 19th century. Um, and so, yeah, so Coke, you know, Coke's a great example that I talk about in the book as a, as a, you know, it's iconography that many artists, whether you're in Japan and Hungary and Venezuela um, or in East Germany, artists think about Coke as a way to, um, to, to think about and to question um, the ties of American consumerism uh, to American military escapades in Vietnam uh, and abroad. And of course, most of these sort of art, you know, paintings and works of art are critical uh, of Coke and of American intervention. Uh, and can you talk a bit about the role of art collectives and museums during this time? Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, we think about 1968 is so vitally important, you know, the height of the Vietnam War, um, violent suppression of revolt in Chicago and Prague and you know, the revolt in, um, in, in Paris. And so many artists banded together as collectives at the time. Um, and I think about this um, really interesting moment in 1967 where Cuba invited 80 artists from around the world to come and create a mural um, on television. Um, with, you know, each artist got his or her own quadrant, and they um, they created a mural full of different styles. It showed a, an example of socialist art that was not tied to Soviet examples, so it was a communally made work of art. But also here in America, the Art Workers Coalition was a group of artists and critics and scholars who tried to forge links between uh, museum trustees and sort of, um, you know, the production of hardware for Vietnam. And so they found out that some trustees at MoMA and New York and the Metropolitan Museum, you know, helped produce napalm, or their companies they invested in helped produce napalm. And so these collectives really tried to show how museums weren't these institutions that were distant from politics, you know, on the Hill, and you come there for these immersive experiences of beauty and, you know, and, and, and joy. But instead, these museums were instruments of government power, and how um, you know, and how these were not apolitical, but deeply uh, political. So, collectives played a really important role in sort of shaping how art was seen, how it was made in the late 1960s. Now, moving on into the 70s, uh, what were the effects of the détente on the development of art, uh, and then the consequences of its disintegration? Good, yeah. The Tom was his pause and you know open hostilities. I mean, I think Nixon in, in his inaugural in 1969 said that after a period of confrontation, we are entering an era of negotiation. And so treaties and um, exchange were really the hallmarks of Detente. And I think you know to return to Warhol to kind of keep that theme going. I think he's a very his Mao paintings are a fitting example. Um, he paints Chairman Mao not until 1972 um, or 73 after. Uh, Richard Nixon's surprise trip to China uh, the year previously. And these pictures of Mao are really interesting. They layer on really bold, abstract expressionist brush strokes over top of a socialist realist picture of Mao. So in some ways, if detente is about cooperation and exchange and peaceful coexistence, in Warhol's Mao, you see the peaceful coexistence of big, bold, abstract brush strokes uh, and socialist realism. So there really are for me, emblems uh, of, uh, of detente. 
Now, you write that the full emergence of postmodernism in the 1980s was a direct consequence of the breakdown of the Cold War as a binary worldview and the imminent demise of the conflict. So could you discuss the development of postmodernism as a response to the late Cold War political conditions in the art of the 1980s? Yeah, now we're getting to the hard questions. Um, this is this is good. But I actually think that these uh, upheavals, um, the upheavals in 1968, which I mentioned just a moment ago, was really the start of all this. Um, because we begin having critics like um, thinkers like um, uh, Gita Bohr in France and Herbert Marcuse, a German emigre uh, in America, who begin to see both both regimes, both capitalism and communism, you know, as sort of as you know as sort of um, sort of uh, leveling the individual, making you know sort of um, um, really um, repressing the individual. Um, and so in 68, Jacques Derrida comes out and thinks about how all binaries are called into question, you know, good and evil, nature and culture, mind and body. So at the same moment where sort of um, Derrida is questioning these binaries, um, you know, these, um, the Cold War itself is sort of seeing capitalism and communism not as these distinct entities, as, as binaries, but really two versions of the same repressive, uh, repressive system. And so we really have this moment, um, you know, of this sort of when, as Tony Jute says, in 68, all illusions were swept aside. And I think this sort of moment really allows us to think about binaries as collapsing. But once the taunt ends, um, and the binaries really, really did reassert themselves in the early 1980s with Ronald Reagan, you know, his ideas of the evil empire, you know, this is really, this is really kind of a crazy situation because you have on the one hand, Reagan saying that there's two worlds, the evil empire and the American world. Um, so reasserting this binary. But at the same time, everything else was sort of suggesting that there are no binaries. And so you have this profound ontological conflict in the 80s. Um, those thinking that the Cold War was the organizing principle behind contemporary global events. And others, philosophers, saying that the Cold War was an irrelevant concept that was merely papered over uh, nuance and local specifics. Um, so when the conflict reemerged in the 1980s, you have lots of sort of strange art that kind of emerges that captures this sort of weirdness between the the reemergence of the conflict and the uh, and the erosion uh, of the of the binary thinking. So for instance, this East German photographer Sibel uh, uh, Bergemann, uh, she took these photographs of of socialist statues being erected in East Germany. So the you know people installing statues of Karl Marx. But, you know, when you see a picture of a, you know, of, of a, you know, um, you know, a marble statue of Karl Marx being lowered into a square, it actually looks like it's also being removed. And so her sculptures began to say how the Cold War perhaps is solidifying in the 1980s, but perhaps it's also becoming dismantled. And so her photographs show these events that could either be you know, be, be, you know, being installed or being sort of removed. And so I feel like the 80s is this very strange moment of art. Um, the book tries to kind of capture, you know, uh, capture that strangeness. Uh, and how did socialist realism itself transform in the 70s and 80s? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of interesting that, you know, socialist realism main, uh, remained, remained the sort of official art form of the Soviet Union until 1980, until the end of the Cold War. But you had artists who began to have sort of, um, sort of capture the, um, you know, the disillusionment in their work. So this artist, uh, Gelly Kortsov, who I talk about in the book a fair amount, around 1980, he began a series of paintings based on the, the story of Don Quixote, um, perhaps suggesting that the socialist quest itself is based on self-delusion. And a painter tackling this subject matter in the 60s would be unthinkable. So the 80s sort of allowed for socialist realists to 
uh, to begin to perhaps in a veiled way critique the regime. But I'm also more interested in the book in these underground or um, sort of unofficial artists like Ilya Kabakov and other collectives um, that are doing work that you know, working outside of socialist realism uh, to critique the Soviet regime. Now, what have been the after effects of the end of the Cold War on art and the Eastern Bloc? Yeah, in the Eastern Bloc, many uh, artists began exploring the archives of the Cold War. Um, you know, all the state security uh, archives were opened up, and most of them were opened up after the war, and artists began exploring these sort of uh, these archives. But my favorite is this Albanian artist named Anri Sala, who found this old film in his mother's house in Albania that, that featured his mom on state television sort of um, supporting the regime in an interview. And when he confronted his mom with this film, she had no recollection of any of the events you know, in the film. So the film really is about this idea of memory after the Cold War. Um, and so how uh, many artists and individuals made compromises to survive under re- repressive regimes. And after the end of the conflict, you, you, know, you repress those compromises. And, um, and so many artists are dealing with the very ideas of memory and repression uh, after the end uh, you know, of the Cold War. It's kind of crazy. Imagine you're a teacher, say, in East Germany or, or the Soviet Union, and all of a sudden you're teaching Marxist, Marxist, Marxist you know, thoughts, and all of a sudden you know, your life's work is you know, irrelevant. And so really uh, a lot of the artists deal with this, um, um, these sort of questions of oppression and memory in really profound ways. Uh, and what about in American art? Yeah, I think a number of artists take the opposite approach. If really artists in uh, Eastern Europe are trying to remember the Cold War and deal with its legacies, Many American artists like Jeff Koons, for instance, are really interested in perhaps forgetting the Cold War. I'm thinking of his really large, shiny sort of sculptures of balloon dogs. I'm not sure if you know these, but these are sort of massively um, shiny and impressive sculptures that are really frivolous. And if communists always attacked American art for being frivolous and about nothing, these sort of sculptures sort of wear that as a badge of honor. Almost like almost as victory trophies, um, you know, for the for, you know, for America at the end of the Cold War, um, and that the fact that these sculptures are collected by the global titans of capital and sell for tens of millions of dollars only seems to solidify these this point that these pick these sculptures are really you know celebrations uh, of capitalism. I have seen those, and I didn't I didn't know that. That's interesting. Um, so can you talk a little bit also about the long term consequences of the Cold War for the development of global art in the 21st century, which I know is a, is a very broad question. Yeah, I mean, it's you know there are of course still repressive regimes, communist regimes, whether in North Korea, you have you know China, which is communist at least in name, if not in not in their economy. But I'm more interested in this legacy and. The um, sort of the uh, Soviet uh, art historian and critic Boris Groys has written um, that the Soviet Union at least at least provided a mechanism for making art and showing art that worked outside of the uh, the art market, outside of capitalism, whether it's socialist realism or underground practices. And many artists today are really struggling to find some way to make art that that exists outside of the marketplace. So I think that's still a big legacy, and you know, of the Cold War, and people revisit models of posters and and propaganda as a way to sort of uh, think about their own practices, especially in this very political moment right now. But also I think there are a couple of artists that are dealing with the Cold War uh, legacy in interesting ways. I mean, Ai Weiwei, the Chinese artist, is one of the most famous artists working today. And some have argued that his works very much emulate the directness of communist propaganda. Um, He's tackling the repressive regime of China, um, but at the same time, um, he's doing so in a way that's really didactic, that's really instructive, that recalls 
the direct art of the Cultural Revolution uh, in China, which he would have been uh, brought up with uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. But I end my book with an um, a artist of Vietnamese descent named, uh, named Yan Vo and his work called We the People. And it's a really great, it's a really fascinating work because he basically creates a full-size replica of the Statue of Liberty uh, built like the original uh, piece by piece. Um, and, but he has it made like most of our consumer goods by a foundry uh, in, you know, in China. And for him, like, what does it mean to have this emblem of liberty constructed by a country that still claims communism as its government? And as a Vietnamese sort of uh, uh, an artist of Vietnamese descent, what does it make to uh, make, an, you know, make this emblem of liberty um, um, by an artist whose country was destroyed, you know, largely decimated by America? And unlike the original, his version of the Statue of Liberty is never destined to coalesce. It's over 200 pieces, and it's as collectors buy individual pieces, they get shipped around the world. Um, so it becomes a really interesting meditation on what is liberty to people, you know, to different people around the world, and also like what is globalization in this, uh, you know, and how does that affect our ideas of nationalism uh, and ideas of identity. And so while national borders are dissolving in terms of um, commerce and capitalism, ideology is still very important. In some way, this work encapsulates that fundamental conundrum of our contemporary age. And it is an interesting time for art, if nothing else. Yes. <laughs> um, now, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your new project? Sure. I'm trying to think about, um, you know, thinking about the, the art of the uh, late 50s to the late 50s to the late 60s and high American modernism. So artists like de Kooning, uh, who's an important abstract expressionist and also artist that Clement Greenberg championed, and to sort of see the dark side of American imperialism, American racism uh, in these works of high modernism. So in some ways, it's trying to uh, put American high modernism uh, on the dock and question it, interrogate it, and try to see like what happened to those ideals and how they were transformed into uh, more nefarious, um, more nefarious ideas. So it's really, really early stages. Well, we'll certainly hope to have you back to discuss it when it's published. Well, thank you so much. Uh, so we have been speaking with Dr. John Curley, author of Global Art in the Cold War 2019, available from Lawrence King Publishing. Dr. Curley, thank you again for joining me today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Deanna. It was really, really a lot of fun. 